Hello, everybody. Brett Stewart here. Before you enjoy episode 98, I do want to first let you know that the reason we haven't had as many episodes in the feed the last week and a half is because I came down with pneumonia and that totally knocked me on my butt and kept me from both recording with David and Nicole and doing a whole lot of editing. So we are back now and this is episode 98 leading up to episode 100, the big 100. We are celebrating that. If you go on over to mgrpodcast.com or visit our Facebook or Twitter pages, you can see articles that we are posting online. It's our five Desert Island films, the five films that each of us wished we could have included in future classics but weren't able to because the timer ran up on that specific year, or my five top dogs from the hundred films we've watched. Uh, Not bad movies, actual canines. If you want to check all that out in celebration of episode 100 coming up, please go ahead and do that online. We'd love for you to listen and read that content. We're really excited about it. But without further ado, enjoy episode 98. Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me this fine evening, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm good. I'm fresh back from my vacation of sorts, staycation. I've almost caught up on all my movie watching, and uh, the kids are still home, and one of them's not still supposed to be home, but he's sick, so fun. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I'm good. I'm good. Very, very good. And also joining us, America's Next Top Podcaster winner, David Luzader. We can finally (laughs) congratulate you publicly on the show. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, I won't let all the fame and money change me. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. All that podcast money. Well, once it starts rolling in, it'll probably change me, but I'm going to lie here right now and say I won't let it. Exactly. Right. Well, uh, Once your celebrity friends start knocking on the door. <laughs> yeah, we got to wrap this up quick because I got to meet Kanye in like 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, well, definitely check the season out if you haven't listened to it. Everybody that's listening, America's Next Top Podcaster, David. Uh, how many contestants were there? Total 10, right? Uh, there were 12. 12. Oh, that is that is so insanely impressive. We are so proud of you. So definitely check that out. David uh, took away the gold on that. We're so excited for him. Uh, I wanted to announce that at the top of the program rather than burying at the bottom. But <laughs> this week was a future classics week. That means some of us get to, or one of us gets to pick a film that is going to be, in their opinion, a future classic. It has to have come out in the last decade. So at this point in recording, we are now looking at 2010 and onward. We are done with 2009. No, no more picks from then. Um, so 2010 and onward, and it has to be something that you can deem in some way, shape, or form a future classic. Now, this was a pick from Nicole. Before we introduce the movie, I do want to announce next week's movie, which is an around-the-world pick. It's my turn this time around. You have to pick an international film. And uh, 
I've picked the 1957 Japanese film, A Throne of Blood from Kurosawa. So definitely be sure to check that out. I know it's on the Criterion Collection and available in a bunch of other places. It's a a classic movie, one of his most well-known. So I think it'll be a fun discussion. Again, Throne of Blood. That is next week on Around the World. But this week, Future Classics, Nicole picked 2012's The Master. A naval veteran arrives home from war, unsettled, severely alcoholic, and with few plans for his future until he falls in with a movement called The Cause and becomes close to his charismatic leader. Nicole, why are we watching The Master for Future Classics? Mm, To my mind, it's kind of like asking why you would call almost any given Tarantino movie a classic. You know, this is a (laughs) auteur director. Uh, It's Paul Thomas Anderson has both written and directed it. And pretty much every movie he's made, with the possible exception of Heart 8, which I have not seen, um, is seen as a major a major work of filmmaking. Um, but I mean, the main reason I, I watched this, it's beautiful. Um, it's filmed gorgeously. It's got this beautiful soundtrack by Johnny Greenwood. And most important, there are these two central and one very strong supporting uh, performance by top actors you know it's led by joaquin phoenix and then there's philip seymour hoffman and then amy adams plays uh you know philip seymour hoffman's wife the leader the you know the cause leader's wife who is also a major uh, figure in their movement and i just thought this was a really interesting story that was very compelling and it's you know, we'll we'll get into some of the some of the subject of the movie, which I also found really fascinating. That has applications in modern day. Absolutely. Now, David and I had not seen this film before, but we have seen a P.T. Anderson film before on the podcast. We got Punch Drunk Love as a mm-hmm. Netflix roulette pick. Gosh, like over two years ago almost so definitely rewind to that if you want to hear us talk about him as a as a director prior to this but david in our docket you put this is his favorite film he has made and i was hoping you could lead lead in with some context on that because i think that's a great place to start he loves this film yeah so i can actually just read you the quote um it's something that i found it's something he said in an interview with los angeles times i found this on wikipedia just so you know the level of research i do because I'm not, you know, going to the interviews. I'm seeing what can what can Wikipedia tell me. Uh, anyway, he said uh, he considered it his favorite film, and he said in an interview with Los Angeles Times, "For sure, I'd think that won't change the amount of emotion I put into it, and they put into it. They being Phil Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin Phoenix, and Amy Adams. I'm not sure it's entirely successful, but that's fine with me. It feels right. It feels unique to me." I really hope it will be something people can revisit and enjoy in a way that equals my pride in it. And pride can be a dangerous thing. And I'm not being very quiet about my pride in saying all this, but I can, but I just really feel proud of it. And of course, there's a particular sentimentality attached to it for a number of personal reasons. It's all wrapped up. Interesting. Now, I heard one critic uh, when I was listening to a different podcast about this mention that. 
it's it's almost like it's a film about method acting in a way or or acting <laughs> courses in the sense that like the way that the actors interact with one another feels like you're watching them workshop uh it just is like i think i mentioned what in our slack that it felt like they were wrestling each other mentally and sometimes physically i later learned for oscars um because everything is so intensely beautiful in the execution of uh, particularly these three leads and i think that leads us into our first discussion topic which is this is full of incredibly strong performances so what does the film have that's more than that? What is, is it much more than that? And this is something from David. And Nicole, I think you have a couple items on that. I did. Um, I put in, you know, that the major themes that I think it talks about is, and primarily is the urge to belong to something, to even the most antisocial uh, socially awkward uh, people with, you know, mental illnesses. They you know, people who have difficulty socializing easily. These people also get lonely and want some level of interaction with other humans and want to find some level of if not approval, at least acceptance. And this is the story of a man who's not really accepted by very many people and certainly not by society as a whole, finding some place that he feels that maybe he could belong. And that sort of precarious edge that he walks in trying to belong to it and yet still having these outbursts that jeopardize that see i gotta disagree slightly i don't think he ever feels like he can belong to the cause i think that philip seymour hoffman wants him to belong to the cause and keeps kind of drawing him back in and they have a a connection we're going to talk to ad nauseum but i (laughs) but no one else there wants him and i just i don't feel that he really wants to really connect with any of the rest of them where this movie does really work for me is in the connection that he and Philip Seymour Hoffman have. Um, I think I kind of, uh, I kind of agree with, uh, I think it's Roger Ebert on this one, um, which is like, there's, he, he liked the film and I'm kind of coming off in the same place. He liked the film so much for the performances, but felt like a little bit in the messaging and the material, it was a little bit more lacking, um, so what I really like about this movie is, as I said, the the actors and some of the scenes between Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, especially when they're um, there's the scene when uh, he's asking him like the processing, he's doing all the questions on him. I found that to be a very compelling, very strong scene. Um, but speaking back to the the Freddy character for the Joaquin Phoenix, he's just wandering around, just kind of getting caught up in I think wherever. I don't know. I, uh, I'm a little bit surprised it didn't end with him killing himself, to be honest. That's, <laughs> that's a little bit surprising for me. Yeah, I actually, I mean, you guys prepped me for a dramatic ending, and it, it turned out you guys just didn't want me to show boobs on a public train when I was watching it, because well, yeah. you guys warned me, warned me not to watch the last five minutes on a train, and I thought like something really well, bad yeah, we was going to pre- happen. Oh, no, we were prepping you because there was, you know, boobies. 
So. Yes, and, the, and I'm glad because it's a prolonged shot, and that would have been weird on the yes. Chicago L, though not entirely unheard of, and probably also happening in the same car. But um, <laughs> oh, the L, uh, yeah. So for me, what I look at when I see Freddie is this guy that wants to join a cause because they'll have him, not even if he necessarily believes it. And and I I read this think piece in Vulture. Um, how that that is almost a political allegory in a sense because i think one of the beauties of this film is that you can draw a lot of different meanings out of it depending on what angle you decide to look at it and i think that particular angle a political angle is that you do have people that join a political party or in this case a cult uh and it it doesn't it becomes less important about what you personally believe and whether or not you even believe it's a, a, you know a bunch of crap it turns mm-hmm. into can you defend this because you are now part of this and you defend the whole, not the part. And he does that throughout this film, even as he has proclaimed several times that he doesn't necessarily even believe it. He always comes back to it and defends it and physically fights people who uh, reject it. And to me, that reads as just this guy that the cause will have him. And that's where he's going to be, even if he doesn't believe it. Right. You go where they won't kick you out until they eventually do kick you out. <laughs> right, uh, right, and 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 I, that I did find what? that political allegory interesting because you do have, especially in post World War II America, the rise of a whole different brand of of politics and and society as a whole with things like you know people being susceptible to cults, and uh, I just found his character incredibly sad because of that. Well, yeah, but I mean. Hmm. You you certainly have a point. I think a lot of his defense of the cause when he sees other people attacking it or perceives other people as attacking it or, you know, the master, the leader, they, they rarely refer to the master by his name, uh, which is Lancaster Dodd. But he will often physically attack people who attack the cause uh, because that's all he knows how to do. He doesn't feel uh, mentally, intellectually capable of defending it the way that the master himself does and would. Um, he, he also doesn't quite believe it, but he believes in the master. Exactly. You know, he believes in the in the communal idea of of this man has literally brought him into his home and he must defend that. Right. I to me, whenever I see him attacking somebody, it's not because he believes the books that the master is writing. It's because he's defending a father like figure. Um, Oh, father. (laughs) I know. I was as soon as I said that, I was like, that enters a whole other rabbit hole. We'll get to that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it seems like he he's enamored with with the master and less so the cause. Yeah, I would definitely agree that he is more infatuated with the master than the cause. I think he thinks some of the ideas of the cause sound intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, And is, he seems hopeful that maybe the cause can help him uh, considering how much better he feels after his first processing session with the master after some crash therapy (laughs) yes exactly after some crash pop psychotherapy um he feels better and so he feels hopeful and but i think he doesn't understand 
a lot of the ideas that the cause has. And so he's just like, well, I don't understand it, but this guy's really smart and he actually likes me and this seems to be helping me. So I'm just going to go with it. So there's a scene and, in the film. You know, the people. Oh, go ahead. I sorry, the, the other people in the movement. Oh, okay. Um, the other people in the movement seem to accept him, not necessarily the other people in the, I guess you could say the higher tiers, you know, in like the central family unit of the cause, but everyone else, even when he does things that are otherwise socially unacceptable, uh, like sexually propositioning someone on a notepad, kind of out of the blue when he first meets her, he's not driven out. They're just calm and smile and sort of, you know, correct him gently and let him stay. And this is the first time he's been accepted no matter what he does. And they keep trying. They at least seem to be continually trying to help him um, where everyone else just rejects him and his behavior out of hand. Now, do you think the fact that he is a, a World War II veteran coming from the Pacific region of the war, and, and I want to talk about that as well, because I feel like Anderson is trying to show us something particular about this generation of people that came out of this war. And to me, what I got out of that with Freddie in particular was that um, he he needed to come home to everything they thought that he needed to come home to, a job, a family, society at large, and normalcy. But he also seemed to still need to fight something. And I mean that in the sense that I don't think he knew how to not be at odds with an external force. And I think that was ingrained in him in war because throughout this entire movie, you don't ever see who he's fighting in the war or anything like that, but you do see that all these external forces, whether it be the police or non-believers of this cult, they, those are the people that come in and, and he perceives as enemies and he attacks them. And it just read to me in a way that Freddie just was looking for what he needed to defend against because he was so used to defending against something. And and that's kind of what I got out of that with him being a vet. Well, I, I think there was a... There's a little bit too of like the army gave him a purpose. The conflict gave him a purpose. And then he felt like he had conflict. He had purpose again and kind of resumed, I think what was sort of a, a role that he, I don't want to say necessarily found comfort in, but found that purpose in. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a weakness of the script that we know nothing about what Freddie was like before the war. There's no, nobody even reminisces about it or talks about what he was like. We don't see any flashbacks of what he was like before the war. It's all, it's him as he is, as he's being discharged from the Pacific theater and going through, um, you know, going through the, the discharge process as they're being released from the Navy, you know, there's this brief, goodness knows, probably less than a week of um, 
the superiors, you know, taking the men through what they might expect coming home and how the people at home aren't going to understand what they've been through and might stigmatize them for some of the uh, nervous conditions, they call them. You know, they're going home with nervous conditions and that they <laughs> might be looked down upon for that. Um, and, you know, the the military was not well known for having a... Uh, anything comprehensive in terms of mental health uh, preparation for the troops going home. They just kind of went home and they they had shell shock or, you know, nervous conditions and were just expected to reassimilate somehow. Right. Yeah. And and, and I think that, I would have liked to have seen more of that. I think you're right that that is a weakness of the script. And I would have liked to have seen more of this questionable relationship he had with a 16 year old. Um, at least, that was at least confusing. The, it was confusing, yeah, but at least to flesh. <laughs> yeah. But at least to flesh him out more in his motivations and him as a character, because I wanted to, I wanted to know why he never really went back to her. And I don't, I don't feel like I fully got that answered. Right, I think that would have helped with, as Nicole was saying, if we knew more of who he was beforehand, if we'd seen that he is now an entirely different person because of the war or because of drinking paint thinner and gasoline. Photochemicals and <laughs> yeah, like it's various other things. If he's basically just destroyed his brain in the last few years and totally changed as a person, like I think that would have given some really strong context to his character right yeah i mean the girl who writes to him is actually the younger sister of i guess a a girl he was friends with before he left Mm -hmm. and she wrote to him and he attached this emotional significance to this one letter that the girl wrote him and goes home and starts talking to her and gets to know her and i think the emotional closeness that kind of starts forming between the two of them frightens him. I think something Mm -hmm. about it scares him. He's, he's perfectly happy, you know, for sexual closeness with (laughs) other older women. um, But any sort of emotional closeness and he took off and boarded a, you know, went down to the docks and signed on for a ship bound for Shanghai and it could have been, you know, emotional running. It could have just been because he needed money, but he didn't tell her, you know, he he didn't come back once his stint on the boat was over. He just started wandering, aim, you know, aimlessly almost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's hard to say. I wish that we had known a little more about him. I think we're just a, meant to come from the starting point that this man is broken for whatever reason he is he is broken in several ways and is struggling to get along in society now and so he's primed to find something to cling to so a random thought i was thinking a random thought i was thinking uh when i was watching this movie was in our 
in our last Jedi episode, Nicole, you made a, a note about Benicio del Toro and how there are certain mannerisms and ideas that he just kind of clings on to and calls some character traits, and that's what he does with his movies. And and don't do not yeah. get me wrong, I think Joaquin Phoenix is an absolutely incredible actor, one of the best of his generation. But um, is the whole like broken and a little bit crazy thing? Is that just his shtick? Because I, I know this movie is seven years old now or eight eight years old now, but having just recently seen the Joker with him yelling about how we live in a society, and uh, I couldn't help but think about that when watching this character or the several other oh. times I've seen him play an incredibly broken man that talks very similar to the way he does in this movie. Oh, sure. You are never really here is another. Yeah, I'm I mean, gladiator if you want to go there. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I mean, was it, wait, I'm never really here or I'm still here? Or was he in two different no, movies with here? It's, in it? it's two different movies oh. with here in it. You were never really here. Yeah, he's, I see that. Uh, oh, he's yeah, he's, that he's a, uh, yeah, I'm still here is when he went crazy and went on well, no, talk shows. It's, it's when he pretended to go crazy. Right. For, for <laughs> right. whatever that movie was. I mean, it's hard. I guess it is sometimes hard to remember like, oh, yeah, he was Johnny Cash. And walk right. the line. Yeah, uh, he has He's perfectly had, capable of. Yeah, he was in her in her, which I haven't seen all of her, but I've seen you know enough to know that like he's not playing this kind of guy. He's playing a very soft-spoken sort of man. I mean, it's kind of like Nicolas Cage, right? Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage, <laughs> who has made his bread and butter doing things like Wicker Man, and you know going just entirely crazy now you have the opposite end where when you have somebody like Joaquin Phoenix going crazy he's still getting the Oscar nominations <laughs> um, but it's someone who's perfectly capable but yet has found this niche that is really working for him yeah I just noticed it really clicked with me and I'd never seen this film before but just how often he does it uh, even when I saw the village recently um which I, I hadn't seen in forever and I've totally forgot he was in it. And he talks in, you know, the very similar style and cadence to what he does in this movie. And I just noticed a lot of these through lines of his performances. Um, but as you said, he does get the Oscar nods um, and he got one for this movie. They all did. All three mm-hmm. of those main cast members got gl- golden globe and Oscar nominations, but did not win. Yeah. They uh, got a ton of other ones as well. What were they up against? And this is going to be something I should have Googled ahead of time. <laughs> oh, golly. <laughs> no. Going to Google. <laughs> All right. I mean, you know, this Oh, they this lost to the artist. Oh, uh, was that the year uh, of the artist? Okay, the so that's the that, year like, that didn't count. Nobody is... Ooh. All right, I don't want to like... I don't want to spend too much time talking about the artist here because nobody does. Because <laughs> what, like, what even is happening? Wait, no, 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 that they that was the year of Lincoln. That was the year of Argo that they lost. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. It was the year after yeah. was um Yeah. Neither of those count. Uh, okay, fine. So yeah, uh, well, okay, but I will say I, think, I I will say that I think uh Jennifer Lawrence, who won for Silver Linings Playbook, not as good as uh oh no, that's best actress. She lost to Anne Hathaway for best supporting actress. Ooh, that's still tough. Amy Adams or Anne Hathaway, both strong. And not what we're here for. Anyway, the master. Okay. <laughs> no, but well, let's talk about that because a- Amy Adams is this Where character. Are we going? So a- a- Amy Adams is this character in the film that tolerates as God knows how- what number wife of the master. Uh, At least the second. 
at least the second. second, But it's heavily implied she's further down that line. I think it's at least the third because she says that angry wives, plural, are what he is constantly running away from. Uh, Angry ex-wives, yes. Right, angry (laughs) ex-wives. Now, he uh, is supported by her, but I also feel... I was starting to think toward the end of this movie about who the master is, right? And and that's something we'll talk about at great length toward the end of the show, I'm sure. But part of me felt that he's she's almost his master in a way that 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 he is she he listens to her more than anyone else in this movie. And and she has a much tighter grip on him than anyone else for the, for a guy that otherwise in many senses of the in, word. yes sometimes literally <laughs> oh man uh, i walked right into that i walked right into that. so before but, we get before but we you get, get what that, i'm saying she's the only person yeah. that can tell him he's you know that can bring him down a peg well yeah she's the only one who can tell him what to do mm-hmm. right and there's this shift i think at, in the movie i think when we first encounter the philip seymour hoffman character um dodd that he is kind of coasting on what had come before people are celebrating his last work. And now he has to write this new book. He has to keep the cause going. Um, and obviously I think it kind of becomes a little bit apparent, not super clear that he really doesn't know how. Uh, and you get, I get, I just got the sense that like kind of Amy Adams was beginning to uh, steer that ship a bit. That she, she seemed really to by the very of, end. Yeah, she was sort of the driving force then behind what was happening. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. And let's let's talk about the sink because Nicole decided to subject us to this discussion topic by putting it in our docket. Otherwise, we could have just glossed over it entirely. So, first of all, leading it's into the so scene, emblematic, <laughs> no, right? But leading into the scene is my favorite scene of the movie, which is when uh, both Dodd and Freddy are locked up in prison. And it's like they're just screaming in each other's minds at each other uh, in this beautifully composed shot where it's just the two cells side by side. And it really does look like they're just the inner psyche of one another screaming at the other one. Um, And they're two polar opposites, but are so attracted to each other in more ways than one, I think. And uh, it's a beautiful scene, but then they swear off each other and they hate each other. And then immediately it cuts to the next scene and they're wrestling in the front yard and um, having fun together again. And they have made their peace. Well, it wasn't immediate. There was the scene where um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's at dinner after he gets released. Oh, his right, family, right. And the, every member of the family has their various reasons why he shouldn't be there. And, and he's still defending him despite this giant fighting match. Um, also, I just wanted to note Walking Phoenix did not expect to break that toilet. And uh, <laughs> that was an accident. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but then they, as soon as they have a chance to be back together, they are just right back. They don't discuss what happened, what was said. They are just uh, hugging and wrestling in the front lawn. Right, which then leads to the most vigorous hand job in the history of cinema. <laughs> Um, not to be noted between Freddy and the master. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. I think we should. Right. That. <laughs> um, the no, wrestling in the no. front yard is not, <laughs> does not lead to a um, hand job directly. No, no right. Yeah, no, the master. Yeah. The master welcomes Freddy back into the fold with open arms. All is forgiven. 
come back. And on he had the master had argued with his family that if they couldn't help Freddie to fit in properly with the cause, then it was their failure rather than his. And you know the the cause's failure rather than Freddie's. And so he's he's happy to take Freddie back in. And so his wife, you know, that evening is she feels like she needs to draw a line. You know, if if this guy is still going to be around, then by golly, there are going to be some rules and there are going to be some rules for some other behavior she's been noticing Mm -hmm. from her husband lately. And so this is, (laughs) it's kind of, um, Oh God, to use another euphemism, it's kind of a carrot and stick approach. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, he's, he's just at the sink washing his face and everything. She comes up behind him and does the, uh, does he all reach around um, and begins to <laughs> stimulate him? And while she's doing it, she is laying down the law. You know, she's saying she's implying that she sees he's got a wandering eye and that if he wants to fool around, then that's fine as long as she doesn't know about it. And as long as it's not with anyone she knows or anyone their friends know mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to avoid embarrassment and that he's also got to lay off that boy's hooch, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of a fair number request one, when you're him, drinking lighter fluid or whatever it is he's putting in those things. Yeah, aspirin and whatever happens to be in the house, pretty much, or garage or, you know, photo lab or what have you. Um, yeah, and she's insisting that he he stop this drinking because I think she believes that it's it's putting him off course. It's keeping him from mm-hmm. continuing his next work and devoting himself properly to the cause uh, because she's at least as devoted as he is to the cause. So she's continuing, you know, continuing to stimulate him while she's laying down these rules, and she's like getting him to agree with her. He's like, no more hooch, say it. You know, like, right. like no more hooch, no more, no more hooch. Okay, yeah. You know, and then she and and she commands him to finish for her, and he does, and so it's just it's completely wrung out. And she's like, oh, fine, you know, rinses her hand off, towels off, and stomps out of the bathroom. <laughs> and she's accomplished her task. You know, the uh. I was going to say also kind of implied in that a little bit, um, depending on your reading of the scene, the, the, the critic for the daily beast. Um, let me grab his name. Uh, Raman. Oh, I can't get that last name. Well, uh, said today, I apologize. I know that's all wrong, but their reading of it was that she wants him to also eradicate himself of negative, uh, read homosexual thoughts. So they're that was my read of it as well. Is that is that you you look at the story that is you know allegedly based on L. Ron Hubbard, and we get we can get into that as well. Who had very you know aggressive ideas about being gay, and I think you do have this this relationship between these two leads where it came off several times to me in the movie like Dodd uh, is repressing some you know urges that he has that he's repressing these feelings that he has and i do get that feeling from him when he's interacting with freddie 
especially in the scene right before that, which if you watch the scene back, she's staring at him all mean, you know, she's not having that wrestling. Um, so I, I also read that scene very much as, you know, stay on the straight and narrow and let's, you know, bury those thoughts, right. you know, not just externally on the front lawn, but bury them internally. They are bad thoughts, which is also, you know, akin to something that L. Ron Hubbard might've believed. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I think there's a little bit of time context there as well. You know, if you, if you sleep around that's, you know, we can weather that, but you know, if you have a homosexual affair, that's, you know, something entirely different in the night. That's going to sink everything. Yeah. I mean, this is 1950 yeah. or 40. Um, yeah. Um, so let's talk about Scientology a little bit. This is something where oh Anderson, uh, yeah, right. I mean, a whole, a whole different show for a whole different time, but uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to be a suppressive person. Let's go. <laughs> the production company denies that this is based heavily on Scientology, whereas Anderson does not. Uh, but there's a lot of parallels, not only from uh, the fact that uh, he was arrested for teaching medicine without a license, like L. Ron Hubbard, or the fact that he's talking about these different galaxies and you know all these different uh ideas that we never really flesh totally out in the movie and that's almost one of my qualms with the, with the movie is that i never fully understand what the cause believes in um but i it, don't think anyone else does either no though. including dodd uh <laughs> including dodd much to you know laura dern's chagrin later in the movie when he snaps at her for asking some oh, questions yeah. because he forgot what he wrote uh and he can't keep his lies straight but there are a lot of similarities, a whole ton. All right. Even to the processing, which is similar right. to the auditing process that Scientology uses. You know, this is, and the cause seems to be courting these uh, wealthy followers. You know, these house gatherings that they have are at, the houses of wealthy people. They're very large, very well decorated and uh, glamorous, almost looking homes uh, with, you know, lavish things that Freddie pockets just kind of out of habit. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, and that is something that uh, Scientology has been accused of doing uh, courting celebrities and wealthy followers. Um, to keep its coffers stocked and its movement going. And, you know, and it's, yeah, it's got the the whole galactic idea of one spirit right. moving from body to body and this battle that's been going on between dark forces and, uh, you know, the perfect, the people who would otherwise be perfect uh, battling them in some conflict that's been going on for longer than the universe has actually existed, uh, according to their uh, tenets. Trillions of years. Boy. Right. So, I mean, it's... Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to see how the production company can deny it. I think they it's a pro forma denial by yes. the production company. Sure, this is a, we would so like Tom many- Cruise to work with us again denial. 
Ooh. Yeah, there are so many people in Hollywood that are deeply into Scientology that they're just like, we're not going to burn any bridges here. Yeah. So, and, and apparently, and Tom Cruise did see this movie at a I, I screening was, and was quite peeved. I was going to talk about that. Uh, so, yes, go for it. Yeah, so Paul Thomas Anderson um, has said he, you know, he's always been fascinated with L. Ron Hubbard, but never wanted to make like an L. Ron Hubbard movie. So this is kind of the the way of doing that, I guess, um, without having to actually make a movie about him. So he did show the the screening. He did show the the movie to Tom Cruise, uh, who yeah did have some issues with it. Apparently, things had gotten heated between them for a while. And uh, officials of the Church of Scientology, who were rep- who repeatedly heard from Cruz, hit the roof when they learned of a scene that su- suggested the belief system was a product of the leader's imagination. Uh, though it is now, they're, like the, the details are not quite clear to the public, but Paul Thomas Anderson did state that Cruz did see the film. It's something between us. Everything is fine, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, I guess one of the more specific things to come out of that exchange was that, uh, in particular, Tom Cruise really did not like that uh, they included the son Val in this movie, uh, played by, what's Jesse his real Clemens. name, David? Jesse Clemens. <laughs> yes, played by him. Played by Jesse Clemens. <laughs> Play, yes. And uh, he admits that, you know, his dad's ma- making this stuff up, that he's he's making this up as he goes, which is something that L. Ron Hubbard's son said about his father and something that the church has distanced themselves from as well. So there, I think it, there's no way that this is not about L. Ron Hubbard. Um, and I think it's more interesting because of it, because I don't think you need to do a movie on L. Ron Hubbard. And I think you'd also get lost in the the books and the... Uh, the Dianetics of it all and the fact that L. Ron Hubbard was not, you know, just a religious figure, but also a, a business acumen figure of, of a sense was things like Dianetics. And I think as a result, you get a much clearer movie with this where it's just this one guy, the master Dodd, who has written one book and people are fascinated with it and they believe it. And now it's time to write the second one. And and everything starts to unravel with that second one because he does get moments like his interaction with Laura Dern's character where he just probably forgot what he wrote the first time around, but she's looking for a deeper meaning that he just doesn't have the answers for. I think if you were to make an actual Scientology film, you know, a movie about L. Ron Hubbard, it would be about the church of Scientology becoming the, the, the villain that we all talk about them as today. And I think you would lose a lot of what could be a really interesting story to tell, uh, where I think that's what what this movie does, which is like, all right, well, it's, it's L. Ron Hubbard, but you know, it's a different name and things are slightly different. You get, I, I think, a much more interesting examination of the person and the family. Like the cause is really weird, but you know, they they seem almost kind of like cartoonishly weird. <laughs> Like, no one's ever going to believe that, which probably people would have said about Scientology back in the day. Anyway, I'm going to no longer be heard from after this podcast is over. (laughs) So it was real nice being here. Yeah, right. Uh, But, you know, another thing that is never weird is Radiohead. And I want to talk about the music of this film as well. Uh, Johnny Greenwood, who is, you know, the guitarist and one of the principal songwriters from Radiohead, um, did the score of this film, which is to be expected in a way after his great success of doing the score with P.T. Anderson for There Will Be Blood. So he comes back second time around 
to do a score for one of Anderson's films. And he does this one. And the entire time I'm listening to it, I'm just thinking about how it could be performed in a concert hall. It could have vocals from a classical jazz singer added to these uh, pieces. And they're just these magnificent orchestrations that are simplistic. It's pianos and singular striking string sections. And uh, it's all very organized chaos in a way, especially in the opening scenes of the movie when we're being introduced to Freddy and the war's ending and he's on this island and all this stuff's happening. It's it's beautifully orchestrated. And Johnny Greenwood also does an awesome job with incorporating, you know, era appropriate sampling in a way. You know, he has Get Thee Behind Me Satan in this, uh, which is an old song, um, but he uses vocals set um with Ella Fitzgerald in, in the movie in particular. And it, and that's early in the movie and it sets this awesome tone for the soundtrack and the score that just doesn't let up the entire movie. It is the, it's the kind of score that I could listen to on its own. Uh, and I can't say that for a ton of scores, but maybe that's just because I love Johnny Greenwood, but it kind of listens like a Radiohead record. It's very weird and a little experimental and it, John refuses. And I love that about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I get really I excited say, about music. Yeah, no, you, I mean, but yeah, it has like do. those jazz elements and it has, um, you know, there's a lot of jazz element to it, but it also has these, you know, modernistic, uh, like the kind of elements you'd expect from like a Trent Reznor doing the social network or that sort of thing. Um, it's just, it's a great, great score. Um, I don't know if it's as good as there will be bloods because that is one hell of a score. And that's, I think, Johnny Greenwood's masterpiece in film. Um, but I love their collaboration. And I don't know if they've done anything since. I don't believe they have. Aside from Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. directing some music videos, no. Yeah. I, don't know. I don't know who did the score for Phantom Thread off the top of my head. Um, uh, love that more Hollywood. Hollywood. It's, even, it's even better because I have a... Um, oh, it was Johnny Greenwood. Never mind. I have not seen really? Phantom Thread. Yes. <laughs> oh. All right. I haven't seen yeah, Phantom Thread, so, so I can't is... speak to that one yet. All right, Brett, you're gonna you're gonna love it. You're gonna love the score for that one as well because it's absolutely gorgeous. He um, does a tiny desk concert of this score. Holy oh boy. crap. Okay. We lost we lost Brett. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, that's what I'm doing. Brett, we have oh to my... finish the show. There's three <laughs> violinists. Okay. <laughs> Oh, that is so cool. Uh, all right. So I guess they've, they have collaborated that, after the fact. And that makes total sense to me. Violinists. That is yeah, I mean, this perfect. Is, this, this score does its job beautifully. You know, it's, it's underscoring. It's underpinning a lot of the scenes and just sort of gently enhancing them. It doesn't always call a lot of attention to itself, um, except in the moments of respite between these big acting scenes. You know, there are shots of just the water churning behind the ship, Alethea, that there are, you know, that they, they take from point A to point B. And under that, you've got this beautiful, almost classical type of music. It's sort of an ambient classical kind of vibe to it. And, where there are these beautiful sweeping vistas and, you know, gorgeous landscape kind of things. It's, it's a lush kind of soundscape beneath it. 
you know, and it's lovely. And the rest of the time, it's it's letting it's letting the action, it's letting the acting take center stage, and it's not getting in its way. Absolutely. Uh, the The only thing I will say is, if you like this style of of jazzy oriented scoring, like or hate the film. I, one of my all-time favorite scores will be that of Birdman. Um, Antonio Sanchez, the Mexican-American jazz drummer that did the score for that, it's almost entirely a single drum kit in that entire movie. And yeah. it sounds a little bit like this in a way. Um, there are some parallels in the jazz fusion that both Greenwood and Sanchez used in those movies. So if you if if this kind of jived with you, Birdman, check it out. <laughs> well, a couple oh, years man. later, that recommendation. Such different movies, but uh, very different uh, movies, very <laughs> different, but sonically similar in their soundscapes. For the person that's yelling at their phone right now, I will also mention to Brett that Johnny Greenwood has worked with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson two other times for Ooh. Inherent Vice. Or no, sorry, he or, or uh, you were never really here is not Paul Thomas Anderson. That's Walking Phoenix. That's what confused me there. But he did Inherent Vice with Paul Thomas Anderson, and uh, you were never really here, which is that Walking movie we mentioned earlier. Yeah, Johnny Greenwood. Uh, I guess that's what happens when your band takes like fifteen year breaks. Is you just <laughs> compose soundtracks, uh, but. I'm a big fan of it. I would love to find it on on vinyl. <laughs> it would be cool to just turn on. Now, as we as we start to get to some of our larger topics here, let's talk about the relationship between Dodd and Freddy. Does Dodd see Freddy as anything other than an animal to be tamed and trained? And I read this discussion topic from you, Nicole, before I watched the movie. <laughs> and then throughout the movie, yeah. I couldn't help but notice it. In every tiny little spot, the way he talks to him, the way he belittles him, the way he speaks to him, and the way he, um, even just the way uh, Freddy acts in that prison scene. Freddy is literally whipping himself around like an angry dog. And I see that dynamic, and I can't decide if he does see him as anything more than that. I I think he sees him, yeah, he sees him as a force. And he's just fascinated by him. I think he's jealous of him. That's the vibe that I get, especially in the final moments of the movie, because you we'll talk about who we think the master ends up being. But I get this vibe that Dodd is stuck in this purgatory of his own creation in which he must always have to explain what the cause is and build upon it and foster it and answer questions and be this head of a church essentially. And he doesn't get to run away from that. And Freddie does, you know, Freddie finds a way toward the end of this movie and, and really throughout the entire movie to ultimately not have a master and to be free and to be free of all the things that lock Dodd down to where he is. And I think he's envious of that in a way. I really do believe that he sees like this freeness in, in Freddie that he longs for, but just could never have. Does, does Freddie not have a master though? You know, when he tries to be clean and sober and come back, he's like falling apart and looks dead. Uh, and, you know, possibly with time and correct treatment, he would look fine. But at that time, he is serving his desires. I don't. I don't think that's true that he is living without a master. I think he is giving into 
these impulses. He is a slave to them. They are his master. Even if it mm. seemingly, even if it seemingly from the outside is like, well, you're doing whatever you want. And it's like, yeah, but look, like, look what it's doing to your life. Mm, now we're getting deep. All right, let's go one step deeper. We're going to inception this. I read this on Reddit. So instead, oh. let's look at this in the scope of the cause and the multiple lives you go through. And what if Freddy is actually a previous life of Dodd's? Because Dodd is always preaching oh, about how you leave your worries and your problems behind in your previous life and you carry forward and become better and stronger and faster. That's a Kanye song. And Freddie is nothing but problems uh, in so many ways. Uh, All right. First, I'm just going to light up this huge bong I've got right here and (laughs) really get into it. I don't believe this. I'm just, I'm throwing it out there. Uh, I think it's very much set up as a as a polarity. You know, you could see it as the id and the superego. You could see it as the animal and the man. But I mean, this is something that I think is really emphasized in the movie is this animal nature that the the master is constantly saying that, you know, people are not animals, that they are you know, dominant to them, that they are not slaves to their impulses, that they are not any of these things. And Freddie is just steadfastly animalistic and it takes him a very long time to be able to take some control of those impulses himself. And I mean, I think that the, the cause is not, entirely a bad thing for Freddie. I think he actually does, you know, even if by accident through some of their processing methods and exercises that they do, I think he really does learn to get some self-control and uh, some restraint and be able to function better in society. Um, but he's still got this, you know, this animalistic streak in him that comes out when he, like, when a man criticizes the second book and Freddy kind of, like, takes him out back and gives him a gives him a drubbing, but then, you know, stops himself and goes and sits on a bench and just kind of, and it's done. You know, he's, he's done what he thinks is necessary, but he doesn't take it too far. Well, I mean, he takes it further than he should, but not, he doesn't take it to the point where he's, you know, critically injured this guy. He, he stops himself. And when he goes to England, I think part of why he looks raggy is just, you know, the journey. I think he came like straight from the boat from England and mm-hmm. went directly to the school and didn't rest or shower or anything like that because he was so eager to come back. Um, but then, you know, he gets disillusioned and he finds the strength to leave, you know, and I think that's, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the master is disappointed that Freddie can't be, I think, honestly, I think the master would have taken Freddie back again, no problem if it weren't for the wife. Oh, 100%. You know, 
100%. Peggy's sitting in the room when Freddie comes back, and there's just no uh, contravening her. There's there's no going against her. Um, her presence is just too strong, just kind of lurking in the background. I actually didn't notice her at the beginning of the scene because she's just sitting quietly in a chair in a, a shadowy part of the room. Um, but... I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if Dodd really sees Freddie entirely as a person. You know, he's sort of this compelling puzzle or a, a, a you know, a horse to be broken or a, a dog to be tamed. But that once he breaks him or uh, tames him, he'll be a fit companion for him. See, I think because what normally he encounters is these people who might be a little bit wild and a little bit crazy, but they have a sense of shame uh, where Freddie does not. <laughs> Freddie has very little. Freddie has any, very little yeah. shame. So he just keeps giving, like as I, as I said, into these impulses and just giving over to them. And I think that fascinates Dodd because this, this is not somebody who's trying to rise above, which is, you know, he thinks like, I, you know, I have fought so hard. I have risen above. I am helping others rise above. And here is someone who is not trying to rise above. He is just existing and just being. I think that if Freddie did stay, if Freddie did take on these lessons and calm down, uh, Dodd would get bored with him. Dodd would eventually not have this strong attraction to him anymore. I think he has this idea of making him the perfect companion, the fit companion. But I think if time were to go on and he just became another follower, like it wouldn't be the same, wouldn't be what he wants, really. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people ask for things from you and you you give it to them and they discover that that's not really what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's also an element that he's constantly pinning uh, Freddie wrong. And I think he has, I think he wants to believe that he knows exactly what Freddie is and how Freddie acts and and the kind of person he is. But I don't think he does. And I don't think he ever really fully figures Freddie out. Um, You know, there's a scene when they first meet uh, where he says that he is hopelessly inquisitive, just like Freddie. Is Freddie though <laughs> at any point? Um, I, I think I think he's constantly curious. Sure, but I don't know if he's a hopelessly inquisitive intellectual that that he is making him out to be in this dialogue when they first meet. And I think he's constantly pinning Freddie wrong. I think that um, as as you guys said, he is a puzzle uh, to be solved, and I think he is never able to fully solve it. Which leads us to our final discussion topic: Who is the master? Is it Dodd? Is he the master? Is it Freddy? Because Freddy becomes, you know, independent of Dodd at the end of the film in, in a way. Or is it is it uh, Dodd's Peggy? Yes. Peggy, who is seemingly in charge at the end. Are, or are, are none of them the master? I don't know. I'm asking you guys. Uh, I'm... The, I mean, the master, I hadn't thought about it in this big, like, philosophical sense. It's like, the master's Dodd, the, but the, the movie tells us the master's Dodd. I don't, so, I don't know. Nicole, do you have any further thoughts on that? I, I mean, I think the the basic intent of the movie is, you know, the movie is the a story about 
you know, the master of this cause. It's about Dodd, although it's really more about Freddy and it's his fascination with Dodd and what he learns about him by proximity. Um, but I mean, you could read it as, you know, the, the everyone's master as described by the cause and how man might learn to live without a master one day. And I don't know, you could go down the same holes that that dodd does you could you could go down a time hole with dodd oh uh, yes as they call holes. the uh, yeah the pa- the past life regression i think would be a more common term for it nowadays mm-hmm. um but these sort of hypnosis sessions that he's doing uh and it's just you you could go down that way but i, I think it's it's more just generally, you know, let's learn about Dodd through Freddy and what we learn about Freddy and whether Freddy or not will accept Dodd as his master or not is the central mm. question of the movie. I differ a little bit in the sense that I think Freddy is the 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 master at the end of the film. Um, hmm. I was thinking about this today and how Freddy becomes less reliant on Dodd uh, toward the end of the film and is able to walk away and he's able to have that life after Dodd. And it does reach a point in their relationship so much to the point that Dodd is calling him up out of the blue to get him to go across the ocean to come see him where Dodd is much more reliant on Freddy than the other way around. And Mm, that's Oh, sorry. You've, no, no. You I was just gonna say, I, I think I think that that in a way, when you look at the end of the movie and you see uh, this dialogue they have, where 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 Dodd says to him, "If you are able to find a way to live without a master, please let the rest of us know." And in in a sense, I think Freddie's much closer to that than than Dodd ever was, because Dodd is a slave to. He's a slave to his own egotism and wanting to be loved and wanting to be a master, calling himself the master. Uh, you know, but in reality, I don't think he's near as in control as he thinks he is, and I think his reliance on Freddie proves that. So I, I came away from this movie really thinking that if anyone's the master at the end of this, it's Freddie. He's the one that gets off scot free in the sense that he gets to go live his life, and he's not going to be, you know, in the eternal dread of Dodd's life. You know, you do you really think Dodd is going to think? I mean, sorry, do you really think Freddy is going to think all that much about Dodd? Maybe not. Do you think Dodd's going to think about Freddy every day the rest of his life? I think so. I think Freddy's going to think about Dodd. I think think it'll... Yeah, I think it's going to be in like maybe a bit of a more wistful way. But I think that he... You know, I think he is somebody who is mired in the past. He's always running from something. And now he's he's running away from Dodd. Is he running from? Yeah, him, but I. Well, I I see him as as walking away and being more in control. It's like, yes, he, he the next thing he does is he goes off to a pub and he asks this woman to have a drink with him, and then we see them being uh, sexually intimate together. And while they are, he starts like trying to to process her. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, telling her to look in his eyes and she can't blink and he's going to ask her questions. And that's because he's the master now, guys. But, I'm telling you. Yeah, but, <laughs> but rather than 
continuing and insisting and, and pushing the same way that the master did. He lets it devolve into laughter. And which is actually what the master said, the secret of dealing with, you know, the problems and the, the struggles that mankind has is laughter. That's the, the secret of the second book right. uh, <laughs> that the master has quote unquote discovered. But um, I, I read that scene in the, um, you know, that last scene in the master's office, the same way you did initially, Brett, but in that, that sense of dependence, but on this viewing, it, it comes to me that it's a dream. That phone call that he gets in the movie theater is a dream. The, the the usher does not bring him a phone and give him a call from the master. Freddie shows up out of the blue because of this dream, shows up out of the blue at the master's office. And that's why Peggy's so hostile. They're not expecting Freddie to come. They're not expecting him to show up. He just shows up out of nowhere. And that's why the master is just like, oh, you brought me cools. Thanks. You know, kind of thing. And he's not... Um, as effusive as you would think someone who had called him in and almost begged Freddie to come back would be once Freddie shows up again. Yeah, and Freddie wow. says something about having this dream. You know, when Peggy asks, why did you come back? What did you think would happen? And he, wow, he mutters yeah. something about he had this dream and felt that he should come and you can take pictures for them or whatever. And, you know, he's not really ready to deal with the question because I'm not sure he had fully understood that that wasn't reality, that it happened, that that was just a dream that he'd had. Hmm. Oh, that's an awesome interpretation of that as well. I didn't even think about that, but that's great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think I need to go back and rewatch this movie sometime soon. Uh, and I think well, that's I mean, also, that, you know, it wouldn't be I, I, I didn't read it that way the first time, but the second time you're sort of prepped for that potential by that scene where um, Freddie's at one of these house gatherings and people are singing and gathered around the piano and all of a sudden all the women are naked and right. he's dozing on like a divan on the, at the side of the room, you know, and he's having this vision where all the men are still dressed, mind you, but all the right. women are stark naked. Um, <sighs> So that really got my, I, I put my my head to in that space to think about that possibility. So I really do think that that, because that, that's not, I don't know how common that sort of thing would actually be. You know, how would the master have found him in a movie house in, right. you know, Lynn or wherever he was at home and known where to where to get hold of him and why would he have called the movie house rather than where Freddie might have been staying or, you know, what have you. Hmm. Yeah. No, I tried not to. Yeah. Now I do kind of want to go back and rewatch the last, you know, 15, 20 minutes of this movie with that lens. Huh. Very good. And now, now I'll close with this last discussion topic. Does anybody know what the hell is happening in the scene where Freddie is running between walls? Because, that happened to me for like 10 minutes 
and I'm not sure I got anything out of it. And I just want to throw that to the <laughs> panel before we leave here, because I'm still thinking about that scene where the entire household of cultists is watching Freddy, eyes closed, bumble around a living room, running from a window to a wall to a window to a wall. Sometimes it's a window. Sometimes it's a wall. Sometimes it's leaves and horses and rocks and trees, and he can fly. And I don't get the scene at all. And it's so long. Yeah, that was that was a point for me where I felt the movie dragging a little bit. Um, I did remember thinking that scene was like, okay, this could have been quite a bit shorter. What they're trying to do exactly, I'm not quite sure. I think we're supposed to maybe feel a little bit like Freddy in that moment. We're supposed to sympathize with him, where it's like these people are trying, but like, what are they? What are they doing? None of it really like kind of makes sense, ex- except for the actually the stuff with. Uh, Rami Malik, which I thought that you know that's what you're doing there is actually kind of helpful. Everything else, I'm like, what are you trying to do here? Right. Um, I, I think it was trying to push uh, Freddie to the point where he has a breakthrough in finding the the meaning of the cause because the master lets him stop after he gets to the window and says, you know, I can touch the tree outside. I can touch the neighbor's house. I can touch the stars. I can touch the universe. I can touch anything I want. And that's where the master stops him and says that he's, he's finished the exercise. So I think that's where he wanted him. I, I think it's certainly possible that the master didn't even know what he thought the outcome ought to be and what a success would be for this. But he wanted to push it just as long as he could to try to get somewhere interesting and impressive. Yeah, I will say one of the triumphs of the acting in this movie for me is Philip Senior Hoffman beautifully portraying a man that you can tell that he's making this up along as he goes along. And he's just he's just good enough at it to fool everyone who is willing to be fooled because you have to want to buy into something like this. Um, and he just performs it beautifully because there's so many scenes that included where I'm thinking, what the hell are you going to do next? And he's thinking the same thing and you can tell. Um, and I think now as we close and decide if this is a future classic and, and bring it up to the panel, that would be my thought is that uh, if I was going to judge whether or not this is a future classic for me, I would have to say that the performances are so electric and so compelling that you can have a conversation like this and all have interpret the ending and everything else in many different ways. But to see all these folks at the very top of their game, you know, this is a year and a half, two years right before Philip Sr. Hoffman died. And gosh, it, like I said earlier, it, it looks like a master's acting class. And it's unbelievable to watch. So that that contributes to me thinking that it could be a future classic in that sense. Um, I defer to David as the other you know person who had not you know seen this before. So I, I thought of the term today because um, we've talked about a couple different types of classics before. We've talked about you know those classic like Jurassic Park. Everyone's seen it. Everyone has sort of a fondness for it. Um, there is the cult classic, the little known movie that kind of builds up over the years, despite its poor showing in the box office. And I think this movie fits into what could be film school classic where, (laughs) uh, 
people are going to see it a lot of times in film school in acting classes more so than it's going to appear appear wildly in their everyday lives um that you can be taught with this movie. You can teach things from this movie, examine what a good, competent director looks like, examine strong performances. But I don't think this is a movie that you can bring up to your family uh, at Thanksgiving and have that most of them be like, ah, yes, I, I know the master I've seen. I love it. Um, I think that it has stuff that's going to make it endure most definitely but I think from a wide appeal sort of sense, perhaps not quite. So what we're saying is that this is the great beauty, um, but somehow less weird because that one was really a trip. Uh, but that was another one we talked about where we said like, this is the kind of film that film students will look at years from now and, and gawk over the composition oh, of it and the direction that, that movie's, of it. Yeah. That movie's cinematography porn. That's what that movie was. <laughs> Yeah, that movie is. <laughs> this movie's stunning. cinematography porn too, just on a tighter scale. That's true, <laughs> right? Uh, so yeah, I mean, I I think I align with David where I I don't know if this is something that it'll ever be widely regarded enough by just everyday viewers to think of it as a classic. But for anyone who does love this medium, uh, I can't. I can count on two two hands maybe films I've seen better acted than this one. It really is remarkable, um, and just reminds you how incredibly good Philip Seymour Hoffman was. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is amazing, but I, I found his performance even more uh, just amazing than I did even Phoenix's. Um, Nicole, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, you know, this was my nominee uh as was the great beauty um <laughs> and i mean this was i don't know i i keep bringing these movies where the these elements are very strong but for both of you it never seems to quite gel as a whole um you know this has strong directing strong cinematography strong performances um i, I, I think I, I, uh, pretty I, strong writing. I don't want to say that I'm not saying this is not a, a good, well-made movie. Like I definitely want to make sure that like, that's clear. Um, no, no, I don't think you're you're dissing it in any okay. sense of saying that this is a, a bad movie. But I mean, I agree. It's certainly not Lawrence of Arabia or you know, on the waterfront, or even Twelve Angry Men. Or, oh God! And none of our future classics can reach that scale. Hence the whole purpose of the of the of the future classic designation well, not that we know yet you know? right <laughs> right um and I, i'm similar in that camp like this is something where i i actually it did gel with me i think i need to re-see it having had this conversation because there's so much i really liked about it and the the acting is so beautiful that i need to re-see it with the lens of having fleshed it out for an hour and i think that's what makes it a potential future classic i think is because this is a film you have to talk out and uh that is all kudos to pt anderson being able to make something like this yeah well yeah well that yeah <laughs> what we're saying. i mean i would i would i will i will settle for this being thought of as you know like an an art house classic as a as a film school classic um you know, I certainly see your points about it. Not, uh, 
I mean, it has rewatch value, but not in the sense of, yeah, you know, putting it on and Thanksgiving and <laughs> everybody sitting around and watching it together. Um, I don't think it's a, a necessarily a mass appeal sort of movie. It didn't it it didn't make its budget back at the box office, even worldwide. Um, yeah, I think that's why with this category, like that's why I keep kind of putting things in boxes. Maybe I shouldn't just have the umbrella term classic like Jurassic Park. Maybe it should be like a mass appeal classic because I, I I do totally see how this movie will endure, but just not for everyone in the way. Yeah, I mean, how how often are you going to get a movie that endures for everyone? I mean, like even Jurassic Park, you know, like. My mom does not like Jurassic Park. Well, yeah, she does yeah. not like anything with even a, a whiff of science fiction to it. <laughs> but I mean, like if you poll the general population, you know, you're going to get at least 51% who are pro pro Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. <laughs> <laughs> That's our new standard. Is this, yeah. is this on the pro Jurassic Park side or exactly. anti Jurassic Park side? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and also I think these are the kind of films that stay with you. Um, you know, one thing I will say, for example, The Great Beauty, um, that film has gelled with me more and more since we watched it. Because I, I watched it again um, not that long after we saw it, maybe six months or so later, because I had a friend, uh, a coworker who had gone to, to Italy and his and his family was Italian, and he really liked this movie. And he told me, uh, you know, to look out for some of the things that that I hadn't seen the first time around. And I went back and revisited it. And I think I needed to see that film twice because of how weird it was and how foreign it was to me. Um, and it made me appreciate it more. And I do think that these are the kind of films that speak to you on a level where. I don't think about Jurassic Park all that often, but I really do think about The Great Beauty now uh, with with some regularity when I think about films and I see other beautifully made films and I compare them to films like The Great Beauty when I think of uh, you know a style of cinematography or a style of writing and all that blends together when you have these types of films. And for me, with this film, that, that'll be the acting. That'll be uh, these unreal performances, which are just of the highest caliber. So... I, I do think it is a future classic, um, and I don't think they all have to be mass appeal in any way, shape, or form, because a lot of classics aren't, and a lot of classics are maybe even the opposite, right? They get panned in their day, and then we end up loving them later. Um, but this, this, I really did enjoy this. It was a fun film. Not a fun film. It was a very <laughs> compelling film. <laughs> yeah. But remember, everybody, next week is going to be 1957's Throne of Blood for Around the World. That is one of my picks. Be sure to check it out and follow along with us. But let's go around the horn very quickly and see where we can find everybody online. David, where can people find you? Uh, just follow me on Twitter at Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. And you'll find all my stuff there. Very good. What about you, Nicole? Uh, you can get in touch with me through Facebook on our Facebook page at moviegoround, uh, facebook.com slash moviegoround podcast. I keep an eye on that. I post whenever we have new episodes. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, drop us a question or comment there and we can incorporate it into the show. 
Absolutely. And you can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. Email the show. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, H-I at MGRpodcast.com. And you can, of course, visit that website, MGRpodcast.com, for all sorts of wonderful content, especially that leading up to our 100th episode. We're going to have articles up on the website. Be sure to check those out. They'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We will see you next week with Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood.